from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Sitting at the head of a long table with 12 chairs, surrounded by military maps on three sides, often occupied by high-ranking men and women in uniform, David Norquist, Deputy Secretary of Defense, substitutes a fist bump with me as he laments the global spread of coronavirus, another emerging headache the Pentagon is facing. On any given day, according to U.S. military documents, American forces are stationed and deployed across 160 countries in varying numbers, from the hundreds in some countries to tens of thousands in the others. They're engaged in critical missions, including conventional warfare, foreign internal defense, special reconnaissance, direct action, counterterrorism, training exercises, and much, much more. And in addition to those problems, they've got their own issues they're working to solve as well. So the biggest challenge, I think, is the constant just uh, tension between the readiness for today, the deployment of troops today, the training, the maintenance, and the readiness for the challenges and the fight of the future. The problems, the challenges, and the solutions coming up in our exclusive interview with Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Tuesday, the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, revealed Iran has dramatically increased its stockpile of uranium, possibly speeding up its timeline for developing a nuclear weapon. Less than 24 hours before, North Korean missiles whistled across the sky on the Korean peninsula in defiance of a UN Security Council resolution prohibiting it. They are just two of the global headaches the Pentagon finds itself at the center of as it wrestles with efforts to modernize. Target USA sat down with Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist for an exclusive interview to talk about it all, and he laid out the challenges, the threats, and the solutions. Thank you for the opportunity to sit down and talk mm-hmm. with you. Um, would you tell us what the official duties are for the Deputy Secretary of Defense? <laughs> I know it sounds like a silly question, but there are some very specific things that you do, mm-hmm. and uh, people should know what they are so that there's no confusion about it. You know, a deputy is a very important mm-hmm. position. So, what are your official duties? It's actually a very good question. So, by law and statute, the, the authorities of the Deputy Secretary of Defense are identical to those of the Secretary. So really, the division of labor depends on how the Secretary wants to divide it up. Secretary Nesper and I talked about this early on. His approach is one that's sort of the traditional model. Uh, the Secretary is the way he described it as up and out, which is focuses on foreign policy, interaction with foreign countries, current operations, the Hill, the press. The Secretary, or the Deputy Secretary, does the down and in. 
the chief operating officer title function of managing the building, the processes, the budget, the reforms. Within that division of labor, I spend a significant amount of time with him on current operations, and I, of course, do press events. Likewise, I bring budget decisions to him, but sort of dividing a relatively large organization, those are how we divide up the tasks. Mm -hmm. And um, how would you assess a day? What's, what, what's it look like for you? What time does it start? What time does it end? And how does it go? So generally about, uh, you know, 7.30 in the morning starts, runs for, you know, 11 hours is probably my typical day. An awful lot of meetings, not sure particularly why, but in the Pentagon we do things through meetings as the forum. But it'll, the, the key thing about it is how many topics you cover in a day. You'll have engagements with the Hill, you'll have meetings on the budget, you'll be looking ahead at future warfighting concepts and the challenges uh, of there, you'll be dealing with each of the undersecretaries and the missions they're trying to accomplish, as well as um, working on the reforms that are going to help make the department more efficient over time. So a lot of different moving parts, but as the deputy, part of your job is to help clear obstacles out of the way of other people to help them implement the president and the secretary's vision. Okay, so those busy days mm -hmm. are designed to meet and deal with the challenges mm -hmm. that you face. So what are the most important, most pressing, biggest challenges facing the U.S. military and, of course, by extension, uh, the Pentagon here? So the biggest challenge, I think, is the constant just, uh, tension between the readiness for today, the deployment of troops today, the training, the maintenance, and the readiness for the challenges and the fight of the future. So you focus on making sure you have a trained and ready force, but you also want to invest in technologies for the next fight. You have a ship that you have at sea, do you keep it at sea longer for current operations, or do you bring it back to make sure it has maintenance done on time to be ready for the next fight? So that's always a tension you have to, it shows up both in, in personnel, in deployments, and in budget. The other one is, is reform, which is this is a very large and complex operation. Three million service members and civilians, uh, 160 countries. You think of a traditional airline, they may have 300 to 1,600 aircraft. We have 16,000. So even the introduction of a new aircraft, which is not something that's uncommon, we do this regularly in the Department of Defense, you have to change supply lines, you have to change maintenance schedules, you have to train people on the new process. So all of those types of reforms, so when you try and take on something even larger, coordinating the entire department on it, that's complicated. Mm -hmm. And part of that is keeping your, your eye as well on the threat actors, the Absolutely. threats that are out there. So, so give us a breakdown of how you view the most pressing threats. Sure. So first and foremost, you have the long-term strategic competition with our near-peer competitors, countries like China and Russia, and making sure that we are able to deter uh, them. We want to maintain it in the level of peaceful competition, and if we can't deter, then we want to be able to defeat as an effective way of deterring. But you also have countries like North Korea, Iran, and the, the uh, activities of the uh, various violent extremist organizations, which creates a day-to-day -day level of tension and uncertainty that we have to make sure we address as well. So... Taking on Russia first, mm -hmm. you know, they've been very, very reckless. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this has come from the Pentagon and from military people, but even the layperson can see some of the things that the Russian mm -hmm. military has engaged in, has been, has been, been reckless. Um, so so what, what, what's your message to them, and how do you handle this recklessness, especially when you look at the ground, look at the high seas, look mm -hmm. at space, you know, tailing satellites, et cetera? What's your message to them? So there's a couple of things. The first one is on some of these uh, 
low-level harassment difficulties, you want to push them back to safe professional behavior, right? When two ships are passing, when troops are dealing with each other, you want them to understand the importance. Because at the end of the day, if you don't do it right, people get hurt. You know, if there's a miscalculation, we had an example of a, a Russian convoy in Syria, and it drove recklessly, endangered our forces and the Syrians. That sort of amateurish behavior on their part is a challenge. They also need to always remember our forces have the right of self-defense. You do this wrong, something can go can go wrong for, for their side as well. So we look at that level, but we also look at the more strategic challenges, the Russian occupation of the Crimea, their fomenting war in East Ukraine, those types of things. And that's where we work with our allies and coalition partners in the region to be able to build that level of deterrence and capability uh, to resist this type of bad behavior. Now, um, do you ever consider sending a kinetic message to them? Because... There have been a couple of occasions where they've done some things in Syria mm-hmm. on the high seas that, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they've been blatantly, overtly aggressive and could have cost someone, you know, their life or mm-hmm. injured people. Have you considered that kind of uh, a kinetic response to that? So we have different ways of responding to different levels of challenges that, you know, you think of them like, uh, I guess the term is like a brushback pitch in, in baseball as a way of reminding them, you don't want to go here. It won't go well for you. We are mindful of, of the need to limit escalation, but there are methods and, and techniques that militaries use to sort of remind the other one, stay in your lane, stay in the right place. Do they seem to be getting the message? Because it seems as though they continue to do this, especially you know near almost incursions in airspace, it seems like harassment in some air defense zones, etc. There, there are times progress in some areas. The one thing, though, I'd step back and understand is we, we often talk about this as operating in the gray zone, right? Uh, countries that do this sort of harassment. Part of the reason they do it is when you have effectively deterred them and they understand they would lose a conventional conflict, right? And they understand they can't uh, engage at that level. So then they drop to the slow end. So to some extent, it's a little bit of a sign of success. You have, you have successfully deterred them from the high-end fight. You're now pushing them down to this level. Then the question is to keep driving it down, further engage in more professional behavior. That's very interesting. What about China? They've mm-hmm. been pretty aggressive in their military buildup, mm-hmm. and they have a very sophisticated cyber operation, too, that's a part of what... I mean, it seems as if it's a whole-of-country effort when you start looking at China, because they have the espionage piece, which is kind of in a different bucket here, but you have to be mindful of that. Their intelligence activities, they have, um, you know, a military approach to cyber, but -hmm. then there's also what they do uh, on the ground, in the air, and in space, etc. So, um, how do you how do you how do you view and deal with them? So, I think you make a good point with China, which is it's much more of a whole of government. When you look at the range of things that China does, that is inconsistent with the way a, a nation behave in a, in a world where you want free and open competition, where you want free and open access to the waterways. This is a country that engages in debt diplomacy. You lend money to Sri Lanka, they can't pay it. You seize the port. Right, or you break into you know the Equifax breach and you're stealing privacy records, or you're breaking into companies stealing the, uh, their technology. They harass the Philippines in Vietnam when they're doing minerals or or fishing rights. So this is a sort of uh, aggressive predatory behavior that is inappropriate in an international community. And what we want to do is steer them back towards 
following the international rules. And so, as you point out, this is a whole of government. These aren't necessarily all military. Many of these are, in fact, economic or, um, or challenges of those scale. But it's, it's an appropriate thing for us to push back on, and particularly to work with our allies to be able to help them resist and push back as well. China appears to be kind of on its heels right now mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, um, not, not the least of which is, you know, there's global concern about 5G and mm-hmm. all of that, what they're doing, and, and then there are some other health-related things. Um, but does China, in your opinion, would they rank as the most capable of adversaries at this point uh, when you compare them to Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran? Where would they fall? Certainly over the long term. I mean, China has by far a larger economy than any of the other countries. It has a larger population. So in the long term, they're the most significant. Now, the goal here is to keep them in the realm of peaceful competition. Right? We have no problem competing with each other on a free market. We have no problem let the best industry win. But you want to make sure China's playing by the same rules as everybody else in an economic competition, not in a military competition. They don't seem to be interested in playing by the rules, though, sir. So how do you, what do you do with that? So there are some challenges. So one of that is the education. So you talk about the, the Sri Lanka examples, making sure other countries, when they consider engaging in an economic activity with China, understand that it's set up as a debt trap that is not done with their interests in mind. You remind companies, when you go over, they're going to coerce you into giving up your technology, and then they will build their own substitute, and they will attempt to drive you out of business. So this is not somebody who it's easy to maintain a healthy long-term relationship with while they engage in these practices. The more companies understand that, the more countries understand that, the more it makes it harder for China to advance its policies with these types of tactics. Mm-hmm. Now, to Iran. We know that Iran did something fairly significant when they attacked al-Assad, and uh, I think it was another base just around Erbil. Um, they, 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 they sent several messages, one that um, they, they were going to retaliate for the killing of mm-hmm. General Soleimani, but they also sent this message that uh, they have uh, more than one way to retaliate. Mm-hmm. So where does Iran, how does Iran fit into your threat matrix at the moment? So with Iran, the, the issue here is that they're not on the same scale and size as, as China or Russia, uh, but they are willing to be aggressive if we don't take appropriate deterrence measures. We don't seek a war with Iran, but we need Iran, and everyone else does, to act like a normal country. And their continued efforts at destabilizing their neighbors, at supporting uh, terrorist operations and others in the region, those sponsorships of terrorism, those activities are destructive. And it's destructive for them, it's destructive for the region. We are one of the players in the area to trying to discourage this, but that's really a reform that that country has to undertake. Uh, and we will continue to make maintain a deterrent presence in order to encourage them to take the better path. Now, um, they have said essentially many times over the years that, uh, and, and they've sort of reiterated it here lately, that they are no longer interested in dialogue with the U.S. and mm-hmm. engaging the U.S., so that seems to suggest that they're positioned and postured for the possibility of attacks at any time. So how does the DOD, uh, how does the DOD view that and, and deal with that? So first of all, we maintain a appropriate presence 
that reminds them, one, that, that we have a capability in the region that discourages them from their aggressive actions, that reminds them of our, our capability to respond if they behave inappropriately. And what you're doing is you're, you're buying time for them to recognize that a, a conflict-based solution isn't going to get them anywhere. It hasn't in the past. It's not going to get them uh, the types of things they're looking for now. And their economy is, is suffering because of the choices of their leadership. And they need to take a different path and be able to join the benefits of what other countries have when you have a free and open society. Mm-hmm. North Korea. Where, where do we start? Where do we go with North Korea? Because there's, there's, there's a lot there. So I'll let you mm-hmm. take the lead. How big of a threat is North Korea right now? So North Korea is, because of the the size of the forces on both sides and the the proximity to each other on the peninsula, uh, any conflict in Korea would be very destructive for both sides, which is why we always maintain our position of being ready to fight tonight. Right? Our, part, our role in this is to, as it has successfully for decades, keep North Korea from choosing that path. They occasionally take reckless actions in terms of, of missile tests and others, but our job as the Department of Defense is maintain that level of deterrence, uh, allow the, the diplomatic sides to engage. Sometimes there's progress, sometimes there isn't. Uh, the difficulty with the North Koreans is always you know, the decision-making process uh, that they go through. But you maintain that deterrent, you have that close cooperation, that ironclad alliance with the South Koreans, and the answer is give it time for the North Koreans to understand they're, they're not getting wealthier, they're not getting more successful, they're not getting the benefits they could have if they took a different path. Now, what about these weapons that they have? There's several several missiles, and they threatened that they have a missile, a, a, a delivery system that could reach what they say is the whole of the United States, mm-hmm. and they appear to be working on nuclear weapons, uh, and it's not clear, at least to the public, where they are on that. What can you share about um, what? What can you share about that situation? So I think we can clearly see what they're pursuing, right? What they are trying to test to the range of their missiles and so forth. I won't go into the, any classified aspects of their capabilities, but this is one of the reasons this president and this department and this nation, frankly, for for a number of years, has emphasized missile defense. The recognition that uh, the real risk to us comes not necessarily from a major country with. Well, it's some of these rogue nations and the, being able to deter or defeat. So if they launched you know, a handful of missiles or whatever they are capable of, that we have an opportunity to knock those missiles down and protect the homeland. So we have made those investments in the past. We're going to continue to make them uh, going forward in order to remind the other country there is not a successful path for you down this way either. So you can spend your limited resources there, but we will continue to invest in a deterrent capability and a defeat capability. There's a side issue. You say being ready to fight tonight, that's been the mantra for a good while. Mm-hmm. The U.S. forces Korea is, has always been in that position. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you give us some sense of how current events might be impacting the possibility of their readiness? And one of those current events is the coronavirus right. situation. So I think, first of all, what you have to understand is, um, is the quality of the training and experience that our forces bring. And I think the you know, the American people can be rightfully proud of those who serve in their military, their children, their, their spouses, their neighbors, and the incredible capability they, they take to, to any conflict. And when you look around the world 
at the the roles they play in their willingness to deploy and be there to, to protect Americans and, and our allies. Uh, there's a reason this is the most trusted institution, and one of the most trusted in the country. And if you talk to the men and women, you really get a sense as to why. In Korea, you see that capability. Professionals showing up, capable. Now, they have the issue of the, the coronavirus that has come over from China and is spreading. Both the, North, uh, I'm sorry, both the South Koreans and the U.S. forces are taking appropriate precautions to make sure that it does not uh, spread within the military. And again, with any disease, it's a containment issue. You can't, you can't be perfect. But they have the resources and the capabilities to deter, they have the medical care to make sure that our, our forces are properly treated and cared for uh, should some begin to get inf- infected. But the real important thing here is that they can perform their mission, and no one should have any doubt about their ability and that of the uh, South Koreans to be able to perform their mission to defend that country. Changing gears, terrorism. Um, would you assess the global terrorism picture from the military point of view? Uh, just briefly, I know that there's a lot going on in a lot of different places, um, mm-hmm. but give us your 30,000-foot your, your assessment of the terrorism picture. Sure. So as the president made clear when he first came in, the United States is, is fully committed to the enduring defeat of ISIS and the, the uh, pushback on terrorism. And we've had some dramatic success. There was the elimination of the ISIS's physical caliphate. So they went from 41,000 square miles, I think, down to zero. The challenge terrorist organizations is they persist, right? Even in the absence, each of these organizations maintain some level of activity, and if you don't stay on top of it, they grow and they spread, and we see that in in different regions of the world. So we will continue to maintain the presence, uh, the the pressure to prevent the reemergence. We will do this heavily through allies and partners, making sure that they are trained and equipped for this challenge, because at the end of the day, most of these terrorist organizations, their first and immediate targets are the countries they're in and the civilians who live in those regions. And being able to work with the host nation to, to deal with that, to keep that down, is a significant and important mission. One of the most interesting developments recently was some reporting that indicates some elements that are part of both al-Qaeda mm-hmm. and ISIS have found common ground. This was something that most folks didn't think would happen because of the, 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 the umbrella organization's hatred for each other, and some of those people who engendered that or at least facilitated that hatred have gone from the scene either because of U.S. strikes or, mm-hmm. or, or other things. So um, what's your view on this possibility of ISIS and al-Qaeda working together? So generally at the higher level, many of these organizations are, are competitors. They don't necessarily get along. But the types of people they recruit in some cases are willing to move from, from one organization to another. It also makes it difficult in dealing with them and that their ability to necessarily control their entire structure is, is limited. But I think what you see is there are some individuals who are, whose motivations cause them to be able to move from one organization to the other, and that creates a, a different dynamic for the way they operate and the way we deal with them. So in other words, a guy that might be with one terror organization might find an opportunity with another one and then moves over to that other terror group and says, hey, you know, I've got better opportunities over here. We should, maybe you should think about coming over here with us. Or, is that what you're thinking about? Well, again, if they're motivated in part um, by the terrorist nature of the, act, of the organization they're in, if the other one's engaging in similar terrorist activities, they may find that one more appealing. And so when one of the terrorist groups, if they're either being defeated or they back down, some of their members may move. And so this is where, uh, and again, I... There are others who have much more expertise uh, have more expertise in this than I do, but that's one of the challenges, which is they have a recruiting side of their function that complicates their management of their of their terrorist operations. 
One more question on sure. terrorism, and we'll move on. In in Africa, in the Middle East, mm-hmm. which for many years has been uh, sort of two of the hot spots mm-hmm. when it comes to terrorism. Of course, there's Afghanistan as well. How would you assess the ability of U.S. special forces and all of the forces specifically in those regions uh, to do uh, that kind of work, to deal with that? You know, we know some pretty tragic things have happened mm-hmm. in Niger and other places mm-hmm. over the years, but, you know, the folks in the military know that going mm-hmm. going in. How would you assess the uh, current state of readiness to deal with those kinds of issues in those places? Right. And that some of that stuff seems to be evolving in some of those places because mm-hmm. of the skill sets and technology for the terrorists. So, first of all, U.S. Special Forces are exceptional. Their skill, their professionalism, their level of training, the technologies they have at their disposal. They are a lethal uh, force capable of, of devastating action. And and the folks that they face, the terrorist organizations, come to terms with that on a regular basis. The challenge is any form of combat operation is dangerous. And so even when you have all of the tools and advantages on your side in the training, things can go wrong. People can get killed. I mean, this is just the... the the high-risk nature of the mission they undertake and the bravery that they take to every one of these uh, engagements. And so I have great confidence in their capability, but as we talked about earlier, the uh, the struggles that generate some of these terrorist organizations and others have have roots that are often difficult to resolve and involve heavy engagement with the, the host nation to be able to, to address and resolve those to undermine the underlying motivations for these activities. Mm-hmm. To the department, mm-hmm. what, how would you assess the state of the department at this point? So this has been a major terror turnaround. What I would ask people to do is to stop back and think of the, the beginning of this administration when, when we came in. We were dealing with the threat of sequestration. Destructive spending caps had been placed for five years. I think the military was the smallest it had been since 1940. There were munition shortages. A lot of our combat units had very low combat uh, readiness ratings. And the nuclear deterrent was in urgent need of of rebuild. And we needed to change our approach. So we had to wrestle with the great power competition of Russia and China and a rapidly changing uh, nature of warfare. So on President Trump's leadership, a bipartisan support from Congress, we had a significant funding increase. And then that was sustained by uh, increases of inflation for the next two years. That allowed us to increase the number of ready brigade combat teams by 33 percent, raise the readiness of our our lead pacing squadrons for the Air Force by 35 percent, rebuild our munitions stock. But we also started to change the way the department was designed. We set up Cyber Command, an elevated Cyber Command. We created the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. We established the Space Force. Those are really a reflection of the way the future is going to be different and our need to prepare for those future types of, of conflicts. Have any of those organizations and, and groups within the DOD family that you just mentioned, uh, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Organization mm-hmm. Group, um, Cyber Command, um, uh, Space Force, mm-hmm. have you seen any metrics that tell you that they are working, they're making a difference? Absolutely. I think when you think about Cyber Command, their ability to push back and what we talked earlier about the gray zone and be able to help disrupt uh, foreign operations and be able to protect the U.S. has been a, a major step forward. The uh, Joint Artificial, Intelli- Artificial Intelligence Center, Jake, they're doing a lot of work in expanding the capabilities of AI across a number of areas, and we, have, we are watching that data become more valuable, more useful. With artificial intelligence, it's really 
the experience processing, the volume of data, the refining of the analysis. Uh, and it's everything with that area from, from maintenance. How do you anticipate uh, a need to change a spare part in a more efficient way so you don't change it too early or too late? AI can be very effective in that. They're dealing with ones which, you know, if there's a natural disaster and you're trying to find somebody in a, a fire or an earthquake, how do you pick them out quickly? Artificial intelligence can help you do those rescue operations uh, more effectively. So we've seen great progress in these, but again, some of them like AI and, and are just at their early stages or the potential there is dramatic. Mm-hmm. Space Force, mm-hmm. um, how big will that get? How big will that be? Uh, is, is it in its state now that we should expect it to be in and, and stay in for the near term? Because space is big and there's a lot going on and there's a lot more that will likely go on. So what's the trajectory for Space Force? Now, Space Force is, well, first of all, and standing it up, the bulk of the Space Force is a transition from the Air Force and other organizations to create the core. There's some additional capability with regard to doctrine, which is, and some other things we you expect, which is why we created the Space Force, to be able to think in space in a warfighting domain. But when you look ahead to the future and you realize we're not just going to be fighting in air, land, and sea like we did in World War II, but in space and cyberspace and really the sort of all-domain operations as we talk about it, those two areas will both see continued growth because that's where the, the threat is going and that's where the capabilities and the opportunities are. Okay. Um, the national defense strategy, mm-hmm. um, there was, I think, uh, some developments on that this mm-hmm. week. What were they? So the national defense strategy has been our guiding force for the last several years. Uh, it's one of its strengths is it was built with engagement across the department. So even as we've had changeover in personnel, the new secretary comes in and the national defense strategy is what, what guides the approach. It's got bipartisan support on the Hill. Most people are familiar with this, but those who aren't, the three lines of effort. First to most is restoring readiness and modernizing our capabilities for more lethal force, strengthening alliances and attracting new partners. And the third key one is reforming the department for greater performance, accountability, and affordability. And all of this is part of the pivot towards the high-end fight. So during the budget hearings this week, week, we've been explaining how the budget supports that vision and how it's the next step in implementing the national defense strategy. So how would you assess the uh, success of it so far? I know you've you've just laid out a few things that you're doing, um, but are those those initiatives effective, and is that thinking effective, and has it proven it to you, and, and if so, how? So I think it's been, it's been working very well. So first of all, as we talked earlier about the, the readiness improvements and the lethality enhancements in our combat forces is very clear. The contribution from non-U.S., from the NATO allies, is $130 billion more since 2016 uh, towards the alliance. Uh, we've seen a growth in foreign military sales. And the reason that matters is not just good for our economy, but also that means allies with more capable systems, more interoperability, able to work better with us and carry more of the load. We've also had a lot of significant changes on reform. The Secretary talked this week about the defense-wide review, where during the fall we looked at a number of areas of defense to try and generate money, about uh, a little over $5 billion, 5.7, to reinvest in the war fighting and lethality, as well as, you know, we started the audit for a number of years. DOD had not been under audit. We're now starting our third audit, part of our accountability. One of our approaches in this is each of us owes it to the American taxpayer to be as responsible in spending their money as they were in earning it. And that's been a major focus for Secretary Esper and and for me in terms of driving reforms in the bureaucracy, even when they are hard, to make sure that we're focusing our money on the warfighting capability and taking care of the families and the force uh, as part of our stewardship to uh, implement the NDS. 
What does your budget look like, and uh, should we expect any significant changes? So the, the top line for the budget is $705 billion, which is actually about the same number as last year. So this is the first year in a couple of years where we didn't get inflation. That's about a loss of about $13 billion in buying power. So one of the questions is, what's that do to the national defense strategy when you have that? This is where the secretary, under his leadership, put the emphasis on those reforms, like the, the defense-wide review and others, so that we could continue to invest in the future force. This year and last year were both the largest amounts of money we've invested in research and development, RDT&E accounts, that in the history of the, of the country. And so the recognition that we need to not just focus on the fight of today, but have the technologies to deter and prevail in a fight of the future. We're seeing a lot of prototyping, a lot of innovation, hypersonic weapons, uh, directed energy weapons, uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous platforms. Those are some of the future technologies that, are, that we are building and prototyping, and that's part of what the budget sustains. What are the most critical needs for the department right now that aren't in place, that you don't have? So the most important need for the department, first level, is stability. We have had, I think, nine out of the last ten years our budget enacted well after the, the start of the fiscal year. So just imagine we propose an innovative new approach. The Congress likes it. The Congress supports it. They pass. We get to one October, but we're under a CR, which means we have to wait three, four, six months to implement. Well, that's a three- to six-month head start we've just given an opponent for no apparent reason. Right? Those are the types of things, or when you have big swings in, in the funding levels and you're a maintenance depot and you're trying to decide whether to hire. Well, do you hire if all of a sudden the, the defense budget is going to go down? And then you, if you don't hire, well, then you have a backlog. So that stability is, is very important for it. But I think the next step after that is we recognize that each of these technologies is going to change the future fight. And so we're going to emphasize wargaming experimentation and analysis to determine how does the future fight look different than the current one? How do we make sure we're ready for the, to win the next, uh, to be prevailed in the next conflict, not just simply the last one? Okay. You were at the border mm -hmm. this week. Um, what are your thoughts about what you saw? So first of all, I was down there visiting. We had the, the Texas National Guard, uh, was down there. I think Major General Tracy Norris from the Texas National Guard was there. We had the Georgia National Guard. They work with Customs and Border Protection, which is an element of the Department of Homeland Security in securing our border. And we have those two organizations, those, those groups, have worked together over previous administrations. This is not the first time we've had, had troops on the border. But I was very pleased both with the level of cooperation and the feedback that received. When the, I talked to the Border Patrol, their comment was the National Guard was a game changer. When they came in, they were being overwhelmed, and this helped them be able to put a right level force on the border to be able to catch the drug smugglers and really secure the border. They've also, I saw where they're building fence. Uh, so we have about 100 miles of new fence constructed. We should be between four and 500 by the end of the year. I asked the Border Patrol, does it, does it make a difference? And they said, absolutely, it's a huge difference. Uh, they cleared, you know, their comment was, it works. When you have those up, it really allows them, and it's really a network. It's sort of, there's a wall, there's road access so they can get to the areas, there's technology, there's border patrol agents. That combination really increases their ability and capability of securing the American, of securing the border for the American people. So I was pleased to see the training our troops are getting, and I was pleased to see the, the great level of cooperation between our organizations. Is that an effective use of your forces considering readiness and all of the other things that are going on around the world? Right. So 
we always want to make sure we have our military capability first. I talked to some of the helicopter pilots, and so as many of the guardsmen, their comment was, I'm having more experience, more time flying here than I did when I was at home, and I was only out one week every, you know, uh, one um, weekend a month, two weeks every summer. So they were getting valuable training. In the long run, you want this to be handled by the Border Patrol, that they come to defense only when there's a period of uh, high level of activity. So in the past, we've gone to the border, and then we've come off. I expect the same thing to happen over time here. We're there when it's urgent, and then over time, the Border Patrol has the right level of force and capabilities, the wall's up, our forces come back. But we're there to support. You know, when there's a natural disaster, it's not our primary function, but we show up to respond to a natural disaster. This is just part of the range of things we do uh, to protect the United States and to protect the American people. Okay. My last question, and then I'll ask if you have anything to add, but... um and it's not on the paper, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those questions that I'm sure you've answered a thousand mm-hmm. times. We've heard all the good things mm-hmm. about the department. Mm-hmm. What are the things that need fixing? What are the things that aren't good? What are the things that you wish were better or different that would, one, uh, paint a different or, or better image of the department, uh, remove any kind of negative views or thoughts about the department, uh, and essentially make the, the department work better? So we have very old business systems, old software, old technology, uh, not necessarily designed to talk to each other. And so unlike some of our cutting-edge weapon systems, our back office business systems do not reflect the modern approaches that U.S. companies have, where they have data at their fingertips to make the analysis. We are getting there, but it is too slow. And as if somebody who comes from that area, the ability to have a clear understanding of your inventory, where it is, and make sure that it's it's have the right level of turnover and activity. Those are the places that are the hardest, and part of it is our contracting processes take a long time. We are a very large and complex operation, and so when you try and change one piece, the number of other systems you are touching is much larger. You think we're just at a much larger scale than a Walmart or some of the other ones, and so that's part of the, the challenge, and it's you can change it. It just takes constant, steady drive. And it's, it's hard and sometimes in Washington where the topics of the news change from day to day to remember, stay on this, keep moving it. It will make a difference as we do it. What's being done to fix it? So I'll give you an example of the, of the financial statement audit. So people think of the financial statement audit, they think of like a, uh, a financial statement in a, a company that's being bought or sold. We don't get bought or sold at the Department of Defense. But in course of the audit, they do inventory. They go into your system and they say they pull all your transactions and say, show me this piece of equipment. You go, they look, is it there? And then they look around and say, what else is there and is it in the system? One of the things we found is places where people have bought inventory, put it on the shelf, never entered it into the logistics system. So other people needed that spare part but couldn't, didn't see it as available. They had it, but they didn't necessarily need it right then. But if they'd put it in the system... It would have been. So uh, Naval Air Station Jacksonville, Navy did a good job when they got the alert from the auditors, went down, pulled out all the inventory. Pieces were immediately picked up in the supply system, immediately turned around, helping getting planes back in and the other. So the discipline of the audit to ensure that those parts stay in the inventory and allow us to turn around maintenance faster, that's the sort of discipline we just are going to build. And the audit's every year. It's not going to stop. It's going to give us that level of attention that we need in order to keep a focus on more efficient business processes. Just one quick follow-up on that. There was recently an an inspector general's report that talked about how weapons that had essentially been 
sent or put out in uh, on the battlefield in Syria had ended up in the wrong hands. Is this process something that would have fixed that? So that's a that's a bigger challenge, which is accountability of the assets in operations. And so I, those are ones where there's a little bit of the audit, but that's really sort of the the organization of a unit, their accountability for their equipment and taking track and either pulling it back or in some cases we destroy equipment if we can't remove it uh, from the region. But that's the type of accountability that we now have to have throughout the organization. And I should highlight, by the way, when the auditors do this, they go and you know they went to uh, Osan and Kadena Air Base and I think there's $2.2 billion worth of munitions there, 100% inventory, completely accurate. Auditors found everything that was supposed to be there. So what we're looking for is that level of effectiveness across the board. But there are clearly places in the department that do an exceptional job. We just want everybody at that same standard. Okay. Last thing. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? So I think what I'd I'd just highlight to everyone is uh, that the Pence Department, first of all, the, the value of the capability of the men and women in the force. We talk a lot about the budget. We talk really about a lot about the numbers. But what really differentiates us is the professionalism, the capability, and the training of the military. And they should be proud of their force and their neighbors who are, on, who are in it. Uh, and I think that's, that's the key part. The other thing is the Defense Department is doing this uh, with what is a smaller and smaller share of the GDP. So we're now down about 3 3.1%. We are 4.5%. Uh, only a couple of years ago, we're 15% of federal spending. We used to be closer to 45 or 50 the goal of defense is not to have the largest number. The goal of defense is to be able to secure the country and protect it with the least disruption to it. So the fact that we're able to do this with such a small share of the federal budget and a small share of GDP compared to history is a good thing, right? We need to make sure we have enough to do the mission, but the fact that we're able to do it while leaving resources available for other things, that's a, commi- a statement of the excellence of the people who are pushing this process. That was our conversation with Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist. We're grateful for the opportunity to sit down with him, and hopefully we'll hear from more of the Pentagon's leadership soon. Coming up in our next episode, have you heard of the Sitgo Six? They are five Americans and one permanent resident being held against their will in Venezuela. It was uh, the week of Thanksgiving in 2017, so on November 21st. Uh, we got the news that uh, Tomeo was was taken along with the, uh, these five other guys um, when they were down in Venezuela for a work meeting. And to us, it was just a very st- a strange piece of news to hear. It was completely unexpected. Um, Dad didn't travel very often to Venezuela, but since that moment, um, he hasn't been home and um, I haven't seen him. Uh, and. We, we miss him very much. That's Cristina Vadel, daughter of Tomeo Vadel. We'll hear his remarkable story of resilience and about their bravery and that of the others being held as we share the story of Americans caught in the politics of the Maduro regime and the politics of the U.S. Coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions about our program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, subscribe to our podcast, please, and follow us on Twitter, at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango.
Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more information about national security events, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From the creators of Cold Case Files and PD Stories comes the next great true crime podcast, I Survived. Each week, I Survived presents chilling first-person accounts from people who overcame deadly situations, allowing the survivors to describe the events as they unfolded and how they made it out alive. If you love true crime, you're going to love I Survived. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Podcast.com, Apple Podcast, and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every week. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.